everybody. Thank you for joining us again on another episode of episode segment, whatever we want to call this of biz books. My name is Gene Marks. Uh, hopefully you've been enjoying our other conversations with some great authors of business books. And today um, I've got another great author uh, standing here ready to talk. John Pico. Uh, John, John just told me his, his, his sister Jody's the, 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 the novelist that my wife and I read all the time. Um, which I, I just found out and, and find that really interesting. But more interesting um, is, is John's book. John uh, has, has written um, and recently released from Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. Uh, so first of all, John, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Gene, and uh, I'm glad that you're as much a fan of my book as you are of my sister's. <laughs> I loved your book, and uh, yeah, and I, I love customer service content, and I love good stories, and you got plenty of them in here. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna jump into that in just a minute. Um, John's website is impressed to obsessed, the number two in the middle, um, and because nobody can spell that, including me. It's uh, impressed with two s's and obsessed with two s's, John. Um, just tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote this book. Uh, so my background, uh, I worked in the corporate world for a little over 15 years in executive roles at Fortune 100 companies. And uh, I decided to uh, launch my own firm in 2009. That's Watermark Consulting, which is a customer and employee experience uh, advisory firm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always... Um, I always uh, wanted to write this book. I had had it in me for, gosh, you know, um, probably almost a decade. Uh, and uh, it was one of the few good things that came out of the pandemic was actually the lockdown that gave me the opportunity to, uh, to just focus on writing the book. But you ask why I wrote it. Um, you know, I really wrote it because what has always bothered me in my time in business is um, how organizations subject their customers and their employees to all kinds of indignities. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could easily argue that the business world is often devoid of humanity. And um, what bothered me about that, and you see that, you know, quite honestly, right, you see it more than ever right now during the pandemic times, because you hear these horror stories of airline passengers that are on, you know, hold for eight hours trying to rebook a flight. Um, you certainly see it with the great resignation and employees finally throwing up their, their arms and saying, I I'm done, I'm not going back to that job. Uh, but there are a whole host of really simple, straightforward things uh, that in my view, organizations and their leaders can do to fundamentally improve the quality of the experience that they deliver to both their customers and their employees. And I really wanted to get all of that out on paper. Uh, and that was really the genesis of the book. Do you ever watch uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David? I have, I've, I've seen an episode or two. I'm not a regular viewer. There is a specific episode a couple seasons ago um, where he tries to unwrap something that is in one of those plastic packages. I've seen that clip, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know if that was sort of the motivation for your first chapter, but you you talk about rap rage. Yeah, uh, here we go. I got my prop. Right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, tell us about rap rage uh, and, and why you chose that to kick off your book. 
Yes. So, uh, you know, (laughs) the story of rap rage um, and specifically Amazon's response to the phenomenon of rap rage, I think is a great example of a company truly appreciating what the customer experience is and what it takes to actively manage it. And, um, you know, the way the story goes is, uh, you know, all consumers hate these packages, right? Uh, I mean, it's just, but the thing, you know, I mean, everybody knows you start to rip them open and then the edges are razor sharp. Yes. What you might not know, though, is that in the United States alone, each year, over 6,000 people end up in the emergency room with injuries inflicted from rap rage. (laughs) Uh, You know, they're trying so hard to remove the product from this ridiculous packaging that they lacerate their bodies so badly they need to go seek out an ER physician. Right. Um, And but, you know, what was fascinating about Amazon is they started to get feedback from people in the mid 2000s. Uh, about their packaging. And people would say, gee, you know, it was really easy to buy off of your website, but boy, it was a real bear to open up the package that you sent me. And so Jeff Bezos and his management team in 2008, they hatched their response to the phenomenon of rap rage, and it was frustration-free packaging. Mm -hmm. And if you or your listeners, you know, are a frequent Amazon uh, buyer, you know what that is probably now. It's, uh, you know, when they take the product out of the clamshell, and they just put it in a simple cardboard box. You get it, you take it out, you give it to your kids. There's no crying or tears, no blood or lacerations, and everybody's a lot happier. Mm-hmm. But what's what's interesting about that is Amazon focusing on a touch point, mm-hmm. the actual opening of the package, which many would argue is outside of their wheelhouse. You know, many people would say, hey, once Amazon ships it from their warehouse, that's it, they're done. Right. But Amazon recognized the wide spectrum of interaction points that even if subconsciously would shape people's perceptions of their experience with the firm. And one of those touch points was the act of opening up the package. Uh, And so they chose to invest as much time and effort in managing that final touch point as they did in lots of, you know, other touch points much earlier in their life cycle, things that are more clearly within their wheelhouse. And I, I like that story because I think it really it illustrates for businesses how you really need to uh, take a broad view of all of the touch points and interactions that comprise your customer experience. Uh, it's not just customer service. Um, you know, it encompasses things actually that uh, uh, affect your customer before they're even a customer. You know, when they hear an advertisement or they, they see a post on social media about you, that's part of your customer experience. Uh, and even all the way through to if they defect from your business, you know, you hope that never happens. But if it does, I'd argue that point of defection is a bona fide part of the experience that deserves to be managed as carefully as any other. Now, not just customers, but employees as well. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that in your second chapter, and this is also in the title of your book. Right. Yeah. So uh, very early, as you note in the book, I make it clear that I use the term customer very broadly. Uh, Sometimes a customer is an individual consumer who's writing the check, paying for your products or services. Uh, Sometimes it might be an individual at an institution if you're in a B2B business. But sometimes your customer can also be a colleague that's just a few steps down the hall. Or your customer could actually be a member of your staff. Uh, And I do think that it is very appropriate uh, for leaders to view their employees uh, as a certain type of customer. Um, because while they're not paying you, you're paying them, 
Nonetheless, they are seeking to derive value from their relationship with the firm, just as a traditional consumer is. Uh, and the neat thing is that many of the techniques that are used to strengthen engagement between a consumer and a company can also be used to strengthen engagement between an employee and a leader. Uh, you know, things like, are you responsive to me? Uh, do you communicate with me clearly and transparently? Do you advocate for my interests? Do I feel better after I have interacted with you as compared to before? Um, and so that's why the 12 principles in the book can be applied to any kind of constituency that you serve, whether it is a traditional customer, a consumer, or a colleague, or even your own employees. You know, so John, you know, you it, because you use this broad term of customer that includes both consumers and employees, um, that impacts any business's P&L. So, you know, if you are providing great customer experience, um, yeah, I mean, that can impact your your revenues, obviously, by, you know, by, by retaining customers and having them come back. But it also could have a broad impact on your productivity of your business as well, if you're treating your employees like customers. And, and in the end, that all comes down to um, the bottom line. Now, your company, Watermark Consulting, you do like, uh, you know, an ROI study um, that looks at the you know, economic calculus. Tell us, tell us a little bit about, about what that study is. Right. So, and by the way, do you do uh, this every year? Uh, it's not every year. Um, we first did it uh, probably about a decade ago. And okay. since then, I've updated a few times. So every okay. few years, we refresh it. Uh, but um, so what the customer experience ROI study does, it was actually one of the first analyses that showed uh, a, a relationship between the quality of a company's customer experience and its shareholder returns. Hmm. Um, and, you know, just to take, take a step back, uh, the genesis of that study, it was really born out of my own personal frustration. Uh, it was born out of my frustration that I saw so many executives, so many boards of directors that would routinely take a leap of faith when faced with invest, you know, uh, with other types of investments that had questionable or intangible ROIs. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, things like hiring a multi-million dollar celebrity CEO or things like embarking on a multi-million or billion dollar acquisition. These are examples of endeavors that you know, you have to take a leap of faith because you just can't know for sure whether they're going to work out. Right. And I saw companies routinely take that leap. But yet the minute they were given an opportunity to invest in improving their customer experience, then suddenly everybody's like, let's get the pencils out and sharpen them. You know, let's really figure out exactly how much is this, this is going to cost, where exactly we're going to see the benefits and the returns. And I think that that different approach really um, revealed in my view sort of the deep-seated skepticism that many executives harbor towards customer experience, feeling that it is somehow intangible and soft, the yeah. benefits. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, it was one night, six months after I started my company, uh, it was around the holiday uh, time, and I was just racking my brain saying, what, what, how do you persuade these executives that the return from a great customer experience is very real and very tangible? And that's when it dawned on me that you had to speak their language and their language is the universal business language of shareholder value. You know, whether you're a public or a private entity, everybody kind of gets shareholder value. They understand it can wrap their head around it. And so that was the genesis of the study was looking at the top 10 
publicly traded companies and customer experience, not ones that we're picking, but based on consumer research studies, uh, and comparing that to the bottom 10 in customer experience. Uh, and in the book, the latest version of the study is in there. It's got 13 years of data. And the customer experience leading firms, on average, outperform the laggards by uh, 3.4 uh, times to one, 3.4 to one ratio. Uh, I mean, it's pretty stunning when you look at the graphic, um, not only the benefit that the companies that excel in this regard are, are realizing, but also the penalty that's being exacted on the companies that are not doing it well, because they're not only lagging the customer experience leading firms, they're actually lagging the market index. Right. So, um, yeah, I've found it's a very helpful tool for really uh, getting people to open their eyes to the fact that customer experience, the ROI is, is hardly soft and intangible. What do you mean when you say in the book that um, some companies, if not all companies to an extent are delusional? <laughs> you use that as an example when you're, you're, you're having like sort of like the competitive bar between companies. And is it, is it just because we, we think we're providing a great customer experience, even though we're really not? Yeah, I mean, that is it. And I think it, it, it goes back a little bit to human nature, right? We all like to think that we're doing a good job in yeah. whatever it is that we're doing. And, you know, how do you live with yourself if, yeah. you, if you just accept, wow, I am awful at what I do? Um, but I, I think that, you know, many companies, there's that kind of psychology where they want to think that they're doing better than they can. The other thing, too, is that many companies are very insular. Um, you know, they operate in a vacuum at the executive level. It's really difficult for people to carve out time to get out of the corner office to go to where the, the experience happens, you know, to spend a half day in the call center, to spend a half day on a ride along with a salesperson, sure. to go to the retail store, to call up your 800 line yourself and pretend to be a customer, you know, to observe customers in their natural habitat, because that's really only when you start to get a, 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 a very clear sense of what it feels like to be your customer. And absent that, it's very easy to deceive yourself. And as the in the book, as you probably saw, you know, there are there's been studies that have been done on this where, yeah. uh, you know, a famous one is done by Bain and Company, where they went out to companies, executives, they said, hey, how many of you think your company delivers a great customer experience? And 80% of them raised their hand and said, hey, that's us. And then they went to those companies, customers and asked the same question. And only 8% of the customers agreed. And uh, yeah, so you no, know, I, I I take responsibility for that now. So obviously, I'm not running a big business, but um, you know, besides the writing that I do, John, you know, I run a company outside of Philly. So I have ten employees, and we, you know, we sell CRM software. We do like Salesforce right. and Dynamics, all that kind of stuff. And um, I'm I'm as delusional as the worst of the people that you write about there. Like I. I don't survey. I don't ask. I don't. And I think part of it is a lack of self-confidence. Like I don't, I don't want to know, you know, like, you know, we've got, right. we, listen, we've got like 600 clients, you know, we, we've done well. Um, but at the same time, I'm sure we could be doing better. If I would ask the hard questions, if I would actually go on site to some clients and saw what they were doing. And, and I, and I think I am deluding myself because of that. And that, that was one of the takeaways from that chapter thing. Like, you know, I should, I really need to look myself in the mirror, you know? Yeah. And I would also add, you know, it's not that exercise isn't just about figuring out what you're doing wrong so you can fix it. You could even be doing everything perfectly and your customers could be happy. And that exercise would still be valuable because the other thing that it does is it opens your eyes 
to needs that your customers have yeah. Yeah. that they might never have thought to articulate to you because they never thought that you could actually help them with it. They thought, you know, it was outside of your wheelhouse. Right. And yet it, 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 it shows you an opportunity to maybe get into a tangential uh, offering, you know, with your business to branch sure. out into another product or service or to add, tweak your experience in some way to deliver something that meets a, a need that your customers haven't articulated to you. So even for those companies that are doing great, that are legendary in customer experience, it's an exercise that still, uh, you know, reaps lots of rewards. You know, for me, it's also two benefits, you know, of, of getting over that delusional concept is, is um, you know, it can identify where my employees might need some more training or expertise if they are falling down so I can invest in them. The second right. thing is this, I mean, you know, you know, you, your first business class you took in college always taught you that, you know, the, the greatest source of your additional revenue should come from your existing clients and customers and not new customers. And, right. you know, I spend so much time and effort trying to bring in new business for my, for my company. If I were just be more honest and, and outreaching to my existing clients, um, less delusional, that would help. Anyway, it was, it was a powerful chapter and I, I, I appreciate I appreciated the concepts. Now, You've got 12 principles for doing this. Um, guys, if you're watching this, you can buy the book and read it. You can go through with the 12 principles. I'm not going to sit and force you to go through and list through each one of them. But I did want to go into some of these principles, just some of the examples that you used, um, just to pull out some of the things that I thought were like kind of cool stories. Okay, so sure. uh, I am going to jump around a little bit. I hope you don't mind. But in the you had one principle called finish strong. And you used Alaska Airlines as your as an example in that chapter. Can you, if you remember that story, can you yeah. can you share that? Go ahead. So what the finish strong principle relates to, uh, and it's really grounded in cognitive science, as is the case with many of the twelve principles, because a great customer experience is uh, as much an exercise about shaping people's experiences as it is about shaping their memories. Right. Uh, as I explained in the book, right. you know, memory shaping is an important part of this. Uh, you're so only, finish... you're only as good as the last thing you do, right? You know, that's what remains in people's mind. Right, right. Because yeah. it's people's recollection of their experience with you. That's going to drive their repurchase and referral behavior. Um, and okay. how people remember the experience is actually different than what they know and feel as they're going through the experience. So anyway, finish strong is one of those memory sculpting uh, techniques. And it ties back to uh, something called the recency bias, uh, which is a psychology principle that basically means that the last thing that happens to us exerts a disproportionate influence on our overall perceptions of the experience that we just went through. So what it essentially means is in day-to-day -day life, you know, you could do stuff that your customer really doesn't appreciate and like, and you could do that kind of early in the interaction. But if you end the interaction on a really high note, that actually, there's a good chance that's going to eclipse a lot of the negativity that happened earlier in the experience. And so this people is the, walk... uh, this is this is the Game of Thrones theory. This is where you watch, you know, you know, every season of like the greatest TV show ever. And then they just blow it in the last three episodes of the series. <laughs> And then he's like, you know, it just sounds that's all anybody you. talks about. Yeah, then that's all anybody yeah. talks about. And then you don't even want to go back and watch the watch it again because you're like, oh my God, it was it, it you know, <laughs> all I have is a recollection of how lousy it was in that last that last season. Right. But yeah, that is uh, that's a good example. But <laughs> so with Alaska Airlines, you know, the example I use there is because the airline industry, I think, has neglected 
uh, for for a long time, the mm. final interaction point with a traveler uh, mm. when they have sort of a passenger experience, and that is the the baggage handling. You know, retrieving your bags from the carousel, mm. because no matter how wonderful the onboard experience was, if I get down to the baggage carousel and I have to wait forty five minutes for my bag to come out. That is not finishing strong. That's finishing right. on a low note. And that is really going to anchor my overall perceptions of the experience. Right. So one of the things that Alaska Airlines did back in 2008 is they rolled out what they called their um, baggage guarantee. It started as a 25-minute baggage guarantee. And then they got better and made it 20 minutes where it stands today. And what it meant was that the minute the plane hooks up to the jet bridge, the clock starts ticking. And basically, after 20 minutes, if your bags are not rolling out uh, off of the carousel, then Alaska Airlines is going to give you a credit to your frequent flyer account, or they'll actually give you a voucher, a credit for uh, towards future uh, travel on their airline. Hmm. And interestingly, the year after they rolled this out, they started this incredible 12-year winning streak with J.D. Power being rated the number one airline in ca customer satisfaction in North America. Hmm. Now, I'm not going to suggest it was only because of the luggage uh, touch point that they did that. They were doing a lot of things right. But I think a really important part of it was the fact that they were really emphasizing that final touch point. And that left people with an overall positive impression about the entire experience, not just the baggage retrieval. Finishing strong. Okay, another principle you talk is about making it effortless. And um, we talked earlier about Amazon, but listen, Amazon is such a great example. You can write, yeah, and there have been books written about Amazon and how they are with customers. I mean, you know, they they, they are at that gold standard. But you write about Amazon's one click, um, and I think we're all familiar with that. But give us your thoughts on why you know you know since introducing that one click, they really. They, 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 they really did hit a nerve with customers that, that yeah. improved their service. Yeah. So, uh, you know, back in the early days of Amazon, uh, one thing that Jeff Bezos and his team saw was a lot of cart abandonment, hmm. um, which means, you know, you put stuff in your cart and then it just sort of sits there. You know, it's right. like the ghosts of the Internet, all of these abandoned carts. And it's still a problem today. It's still something that online retailers struggle with today. But one of the things that Amazon put their finger on is that that potentially one reason why people were abandoning the carts is because they had to invest so much effort to check out. Because even if I had used Amazon before, I had to key in all the information again, my address, my credit right. card, you know, payment information, all of that. And uh, whenever you saddle your customer with effort, you know, meaning they have to more, more data entry, more mouse clicks, more using your vocal cords to tell your story over and over again, that just saps their loyalty. It saps their engagement. And so that's when Amazon came up with this idea of let's save people's information. Let's save their address. Let's save their payment information. And then we'll have this one-click purchase button where with a single, you know, with just the, the twitch of a finger, everything is taken care of. Yep. Um, and that actually was a patented feature on the website, yep. you know, which created some controversy because some people felt that it was like patenting the steering wheel. Yep. But Amazon successfully patented it and other companies like Apple even, they were paying royalties to Amazon for many years until the patent expired just a few years ago. Um, but that is a great classic example, I think, of removing unnecessary effort 
from the customer experience and then creating uh, not only a better experience, but also more, greater likelihood that you're going to convert more sales prospects into customers. You know, that's the fascinating thing, I think, about the Amazon story is that many times in the marketplace, the company that has the best product or service might not be the one that wins. If The one that wins might be the one that has a really good product or service but it's also really easy to buy it, to configure it, to install it, uh, because that's all part of the experience. And again, Amazon recognized that and they made it effortless for people to buy stuff. I really wish Starbucks would learn that lesson as well. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I, I, I would want to go into a Starbucks and then I see the line there and I just turn on, you know, and I walk away. And when I go into Starbucks, I mean, I, the, the, thing pe the things people are ordering in those Starbucks, you get in line behind people, these milkshakey coffee drinks that, you know, these complicated, whatever. It takes whatever. 10 minutes to order, yeah. It's <laughs> unbelievable. And, and, I, um, and I, whenever I go to Starbucks, it's always just to get a regular coffee. Like, I like their coffee. Um, but they don't have a process. Like, usually, like, if you, you wait in line all that time, and then they get you the coffee, and then they just serve it right to you. Um, and I always think to myself, like, why would they have, like, a self-service area just for Starbucks coffee? I can get my coffee and get the heck out of there. I don't have to endure that line. And it's, there's probably a reason why. I mean, maybe the people at Starbucks think it's an experience. You should be, that, right? That is exactly it. Um, yeah. First, I'll ask, have you ever tried mobile ordering with Starbucks? Yeah. I, so my issue with mobile ordering with Starbucks is because I'm a cheapskate. I, I don't know if you knew this or not about me. I'm a, I'm a CPA. If you haven't yes. looked at this whole package, it shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah. Um, but like mobile ordering, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta give Starbucks like money in advance, like 25 bucks in advance that on your, like they have your money, you know, and then I gotta like, they have your money, go, but you don't have your coffee. I don't have my coffee. You know, I gotta like yeah. work it off. I'm like giving them all this money in advance for my coffee. So well, just, the reason I ask is because <laughs> the mobile ordering was actually Starbucks solution yeah. to address the need that you're describing because yeah. certain customers, you know, time poor or whatever, they just wanted to get it in and out quickly. And, you know, Starbucks wrestled with whether to roll that out because yeah. their whole persona of their brand was about creating an authentic coffee house experience. Yes. And that I would submit to you is why they don't just let you, you know, set up, make your own coffee because the interaction with the barista is very important to them. Right. And so they struggled for a while about whether should we do drive-throughs, should we do mobile ordering, and then in the end they they did start to do those things because they viewed it as a a tweak to the experience that would resonate with a certain type of customer. And you know that's one fundamental tenet of customer experience is you have to understand. The, the target market that you're going after and create an experience that's relevant to them. As you know, that's one of the 12 principles. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's, uh, I, I think that's why you, that's why you can't make your own coffee in Starbucks. And the, the closest they'll let you get to it is by doing the ordering uh, online right. and then right. coming in. And, and even and that requires, right. I mean, you've got to set up the account, you got to pay them in advance. And then if I want a coffee, I got to, you know, pull up, pull up the app, order the coffee, do the whole thing, whatever. And um, I get it. Listen, I can, I can promise you that the brand managers um, at Starbucks are way more smarter about this stuff than I will ever be. So I get there's a reason, you know, to the madness, but, um, but, you know, you just talk about making it effortless, like, like Amazon did. And, and, yeah. you know, they, you know, you know, for, for all of us, if we can focus on those things that could make the experience better for and, our customers. And this actually, you know, if I might, because I think this will sure. be very important for your listeners. Sure. 
the 12 principles, I call them universal principles of customer experience design, but it doesn't mean they have to be applied universally. Okay. Uh, and I talk about this in the book, and this is a very important takeaway because you could look, there are some companies that are out there that are renowned for their customer experience, yet are not effortless to work with. Right. Um, you know, you look, for example, at an Aldi grocery store, right. highly rated by their customers, right. but not effortless. You got to bag your own groceries to get a shopping cart. You got to get a quarter, put it in yeah. to get the cart out and then return the cart to get your quarter back. So, you know, you look at a company like that or a company like Ikea, where if I just want to buy a light bulb, I got to snake through the entire store to get to the, the shelves to pick up my light bulb. <laughs> That's not effortless. But what True. those companies are doing is they are doubling down on other elements of the 12 principles. And so they make a conscious decision that we're not going to be known for being effortless, but we're going to be known for something else. And, and that's an important point because uh, I don't want anybody to walk away thinking, well, gee, we've got to nail all 12. That's not necessarily the case. Got it. Let's talk about emotions as well. You talked about uh, MailChimp's Freddy High Five um, as something that stirs emotion. Um, you know, most of my listeners and viewers are familiar with MailChimp as, a, you know, as an email marketing service. Um, but tell me about the Freddy High Five story. Yeah. So, uh, you you lead a business yourself, and so yeah. maybe you know. And we your use, listeners, we use Mailchimp, do. by the way. What was that? We use Mailchimp. But, you know, oh, great! Yeah. Okay. okay. So, uh, you know, anybody that is a small to medium sized business owner, when you're doing email marketing, okay. you're familiar with all of the anxiety before you hit the send button, right? right. You know, you're because you've checked over that email, you've checked the links carefully. Like all you're thinking is, oh my gosh, is there a spelling error? Is there a grammar error? Is there a link that's broken? And when you finally hit that send button, you know, there is some sense of accomplishment. Like, well, all right, you know, the, it, the missiles are flying. It's yep. out there now. Yep. And there was a, a guy at MailChimp who used to work in a small business. And then he was hired by MailChimp and he was one of their uh, uh, software designers. And he said that whenever in his former role, whenever he sent out an email marketing campaign, he always felt like somebody should, after he sent it, he felt like somebody should come in and pat him on the back, you know, like just give him sort of like, good job, nicely done. Right. And he realized, he thought, you know, why don't we do that for our customers? Because that's probably what they're feeling. And so <laughs> that was the genesis of the Freddie high five. Freddie is MailChimp's mascot. It's a, uh, he's a monkey, I guess. And so, um, you know, when for many years, they actually just recently changed this. But for many years, the way it worked was when you sent an email from MailChimp, Freddie appeared on the screen, and he put his hand out like this to you and gave you a high five. And this kind of went viral, like people started uh, on social media sharing pictures and videos of themselves high fiving their screen and high fiving Freddie. Um, but the, the guy that designed it, he acknowledged in interviews, this serves no functional purpose, right? none at all. But it fits in with the principle about stirring emotion because one way to make the experience not only better in the moment, but also more memorable is to use emotion as a memory cue. And uh, by celebrating wins with your customers, milestones, accomplishments, in essence, by, by, by cultivating a sense of positive, positive emotions that they might already be feeling and priming them for that, what you're really doing is infusing the experience with a degree of emotion 
that helps to make it more positive and more memorable. And, uh, you know, that's why it works. And it was a, a great addition for them. And you don't think that that's like corny or, you know, or, or, you know, goofy or anything like that, or, or, or is that just like, listen, people like that stuff. Well, I think there's probably a certain segment of people out there that look at it and say it's corny and don't mm -hmm. care about it and would never think to share a picture of themselves high-fiving their screen <laughs> with Freddie. But, you know, there's definitely as an entire segment out there that clearly it resonates with sure. because they liked it. They took pictures of themselves with it. Um, you know, here again, kind of old adage, you can't please everybody all the time. You just want to make sure that you're engineering an experience that certainly doesn't make anybody run for the hills. Right. But, you know, nobody's going to like look at the Freddie high five and say, whoa, I am never doing business with MailChimp again. I mean, they'll just kind of ignore it. They'll sort of view it as hmm, that's peculiar, you know, but whatever. Um, but for some people, yeah, it's uh, it's just that little added something that makes them feel good about what they just did with MailChimp. Okay. Another principle um, of great customer service um, is about being an advocate. Um, you did give a couple of examples. Um, Southwest Airlines, you would talk briefly about, uh, you know, about how Alaska with getting bags, Southwest had uh, eliminated their baggage fees or their, you know, would, would not charge you for baggage. Right. But you also talked about ING Bank as well, you know, which is more boring than Southwest. Um, and about being an advocate. What does being an advocate mean? How, what did ING Bank do um, that, that, that was a good example of being an advocate for their customers? Yeah, so advocacy is, is a very powerful way to engage your customers. Uh, you know, again, whether it's an employee or a consumer. But the thing about advocacy is it's not the words that matter, it's the actions. Right. Um, it's, you know, you got to kind of put your money where your mouth is, if you will. It's any, any business can say on their website or in their marketing materials, hey, we put our customers first and we advocate for our customers and we look out for your interests. But where the rubber really meets the road is what tangibly is the company doing uh, that, that helps to uh, demonstrate that. And with ING Direct, uh, you know, which became very quickly the biggest savings ba uh, bank in the U.S., you know, from nothing, it was founded by uh, Arkady Kuhlman. And he did a number of things that, uh, that, that he felt um, consumers needed in order to be prote protected from some of the evildoers within the financial services industry. Okay. Um, so, for example, uh, he made certain that people uh, would not be awarded mortgages if there was not the right loan to value ratio, uh, you know, to make sure that we're not giving people mortgages who really couldn't afford those homes. Now, he was, you know, prescient in this regard, because mm -hmm. a few years afterwards, the, the Great Recession was brought on by the whole mortgage debacle because a lot of other banks, they didn't care about, you know, the, the uh, loan to value ratios and they were just, you know, lending haphazardly. So that was an example of something that he did. He also said from the very beginning, he said, we are not going to take any money from millionaires, you know, which is kind of striking. You're starting a new bank. Sure. You're trying to accumulate deposits. Why wouldn't you take money from millionaires? And the reason was he said that if you are a millionaire, you likely need more support, more guidance than what ING Direct is being set up to provide. Hmm. And so we don't think it's in your best interest to do business with us because you'd be better served by another institution. So he basically said, hey, we're going to let that business go. Um, and then the last example I'd give you too is 
uh, ING Direct uh, did not have any brick and mortar um, uh, stores, any brick and mortar branches. That obviously saved them a lot of money. Sure. Instead of choosing to just line their pockets with those savings, they gave it back to their customers in the mm. form of much higher interest rates. Right. And so, you know, these are all examples of, uh, of ING Direct really choosing to forego greater financial return, you could argue, in the short term uh, by doing something right for its customers. Now, it, I say in the short term, but in the long term, it's the right answer because in the long term, advocacy is what really drives people to continue to do business with you and to tell others about you. Okay. We've only got about 10 minutes left, but that gives us time for just two more stories uh, that I, I'd like you to relate. Um, one is about one of my favorite sandwich shops in the country called Pret-a-Manger, um, which is big in the UK. We, we, my wife is from England, so we, we travel to London a lot. We're always made a point. And then they moved over to the US a few years ago and um, right. have been, have been you know, you're growing around the country. Um, and you say they deliver pleasant surprises. Tell us about what you mean. Yep. So first, the surprises fit into the whole structure here because surprises are memorable. Okay. Uh, whether they're really bad or really good, the way our brains are wired, if you come across something novel and new, uh, it sticks in your head. Okay. okay. So what Pret-a-Manger did is they sort of figured out how do we flip the script in the standard uh, playbook, if you will, of a fast casual um, restaurant? Because, you know, you go into the store, you go into a store like this and what? You grab your sandwich, you grab your coffee, and then you go up to the register to pay for it. Right. Well, what Pret-a-Manger did is they actually gave each location and each employee a weekly allotment of free drinks and food that they were permitted to give away. And so when, when the customer comes idea. up to the, what was that? Such a great idea. Keep going. Yeah. So when the customer comes up to the register, uh, there's a chance that the employee will just say, hey, that's on us today. Have a great day. Now, Pret-a-Manger estimates that about a quarter of its customers have actually had this experience where at one point they were given their meal or drink for free. The beauty of this whole approach, it's, it works on so many levels. First, it's surprising, so you remember it positively. Sure. But it stands out so much in your memory, you're going to tell other people about it. And so even the 75% of people who haven't experienced it, they probably have heard about it from a friend, and it just makes them want to go to Pret-a-Manger and you know, see, gee, we'll, we'll, I'll roll the dice today, will we'll mine be free? But sure. then there's also another constituency that really benefits, and that's the employees themselves. Yes. Imagine being an employee at a sandwich shop and being empowered to make somebody's day by giving them a free lunch. You know, you see a, a business person that just looks to be having a bad day. And so you say, hey, it's on us today. I mean, think about what that feels like to be an employee and to have that ability. So I think it was not only engaging for their customers, but also for their staff. All of this dovetails in, again, with your original premise that customer service should be focused on both your consumers and also your employees as well. 
And you're right. Um, giving your employees the ability to delight your consumers. It's like hitting, you know, killing two birds with one stone. Exactly. Um, and, and, um, I, I, I just think it's a great policy. I will have to say that I've never been ordered a free, uh, given a free anything at a uh, Pret-a-Manger yet. And we go there a lot. So, uh, so I'm <laughs> waiting. Okay. I mean, it's going to happen sometime soon, but I am aware that they do that. And I just think, I think it's a great, great idea. All right, John. So in the final few minutes that we have, um, there were maggots on a U.S. Airways flight at one point, but U.S. Airways managed to recover and turn this around um, into um, ultimately a good positive, a positive for customer experience. Tell us about recovering with style and what U.S. Oh, Airways well, made. actually, I, I, it was the, the U.S. Air story is actually a not good story of recovery. <laughs> That's I'm the sorry. bad one. Sorry. I thought that they recovered the, my memory of it. This is bad because I didn't write the book. My memory of it was that they did respond, but I guess they didn't. So we're going to yeah, tell a no, bad story. No. So, you know, All right, let's tell the bad story. Of I give that, you... are, that are told in the book. And, and, and the one, po- uh, there's a positive one from Ritz Carlton. I was just going to say in the dress, the dress. So, you know what? Right. Let's, I don't, I don't want to mess with U.S. Airways. And only U.S. Airways doesn't even exist anymore. Forget about the, the maggot story. Let's talk about Ritz Carlton in the dress. Because that's right. Let's see. Let's see this interview off at least as like on a, on a, on a good note. What did Ritz yeah, Carlton sure. do? So, you know, the point about the, the recover for, st- for uh, recover with style principle is it ties in a little bit with the finish strong that yeah. we talked about earlier. It it's it this does. notion that if you have a failure in the customer experience, that you don't have to resign yourself to creating a, a brand detractor. Right. That if you if you focus on overcorrecting on the recovery, you know, really knocking the the, the ball out of the park on the recovery you're actually finishing strong and you're finishing with such a peak at the end of that recovery that it can actually eclipse the negativity of the failure itself. Um, and you know this has actually been studied a lot. It actually has a term uh, associated with it. It's called the service paradox. Okay. And it basically refers to this idea that if you recover really well from mm. a failure, you could end up with a more loyal customer after the recovery than you had even before the failure. So what um, and so the Ritz Carlton story uh, is about a um, an incident that I had when I was working uh, in the corporate world, and I was going to this uh, big um, uh, uh, conference for uh, top uh, producing salespeople at our company, that- and you know it was a huge deal. The CEO, the board of directors were there. It was a recognition event, and it was held at the Ritz Carlton in Naples, Florida. Uh, and there was a black tie formal dinner one night. Um, you know, really big deal. And uh, I take my wife with me and she bought this lovely uh, evening gown for the black tie event. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we got to the Ritz Carlton, uh, we're unpacking our bags and she noticed that her um, formal evening gown got all wrinkled in transit. Uh, and so she sent it out to the Ritz Carlton dry cleaning service to be pressed. Well, the next day it came back and I kid you not, it's like the size of a Barbie doll. <laughs> you know, there's like no way that she's going to squeeze into it. Uh, and you know, they're just a couple days before the event and she's freaking out because she has oh, nothing no. to wear. Well, right. you know, suffice it to say the recovery was just amazing. I ended up contacting the front desk, spoke to the hotel manager. He basically arranged for an all expense paid trip for my wife in a limo to the local high end mall <laughs> with a personal shopper to get uh, a new dress and shoes and accessories to go with it. Ritz paid for it all. Oh my God. And then the night of the event, we actually discovered just, you know, like six, uh, 45 minutes before the event that the store had left the ink cartridge, the anti-shoplifting ink cartridge on the bottom of the dress. 
And so I called down and spoke to the hotel manager. And what did he do? He summoned someone from the store to come to our room with the ink cartridge removal device and took it off. You know, like that's, I mean, the recovery just never stopped. And then it gets even better. We go down to the event and we're at our table uh, and uh, there's nobody at our table yet. We're there a little early and I've got my head down. I'm looking at the menu to decide what I'm going to order. And I look up because I hear clapping and there at the end of the table is the Ritz Carlton hotel manager and his staff clapping, applauding in admiration of how beautiful my wife looks in her new dress. <laughs> you know, and I mean, it was just like the scene from Pretty Woman where yeah. Julia Roberts, you know, had to get a dress for Richard Gere's <laughs> event. And she came back into the hotel wearing it and all the hotel staff were fawning over her. But that actually happened to me and my wife. And it was a great example of taking what could have been an awful, awful, emotionally scarring experience and turning it into something legendary. There's also another point that you made in that chapter, which again dovetails to the example you used with pret manger and from the beginning of the book. But um, the, the staff at Ritz-Carlton were given the license to do this, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, Ritz Carlton is famous uh, for giving every staff person, no matter where they work uh, within the hotel, everybody's got $2,000 a day that they can use to make something right for a customer. Uh, and they don't have to ask anybody. They just use it. And, you know, there are many businesses where the, the, the executives will be like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I wouldn't dare. I, I would be scared to give that authority to my staff. But, you know, the Ritz-Carlton doesn't do it in a vacuum. They're really good at hiring people that exercise good judgment, that are smart, intelligent people, and, and they, they educate them well, they train them well, they give them good guidelines to work from, and then they, they let them go out, you know, uh, and, and make it happen, um, and they trust their people. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. They're, they create an environment where people are keen to take ownership and accountability for helping customers. And oftentimes that's all customers want. Hmm. You know, they just want somebody to step forward and confidently say, I can help you with that. And then to deliver. John, you know, you've been doing this for a number of years. You consult on customer service. You are, um, you know, obviously you've worked with a lot of major brands and then you sit down and you write this book. A lot of people, uh, just about all the people that I, I know who write books, particularly on business or lessons learned or whatever, um, they walk out of it even more educated from, you know, from it than they were before they started writing the book. And so I got to ask you, as we, as we close this out, like what was, you know, when you finally finished this book, what was, what was something that you took away from this book that surprised you, that you really learned from, you know, from, about customer service? Wow, that's such an interesting question. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the act of researching the book was a very enjoyable exercise because while I had all 12 principles in my mind and I had lots of examples of them, yeah. uh, I, you know, I went down a few rabbit holes and I found new examples that I just found really interesting and, and put in the book. So that was one thing that I learned was just, you know, other illustrations of these principles at work. Um, but I think that the other thing I would mention would be this notion of how the principles play off of one another. Hmm. Um, you know, they don't sort of work in a vacuum. Uh, you know, if you demonstrate advocacy for a customer, it also stirs emotion in them. Yeah. 
Hmm. And you might also, depending on where that advocacy occurs, you might also be finishing strong at the same time. Hmm. And so what I really came away with was a, a new appreciation for how the 12 principles play off of one another and almost create like a flywheel effect. You know, they're just kind of bigger than the, uh, the sum is greater than the parts, if you will. Right. Uh, and, and that was definitely something that I, I developed a, a, a stronger appreciation for once I kind of stepped back and, and looked at all the stories I had come up with, all the examples. Um, and I think that really underscores why customer experience can be such a strong competitive differentiator. Because once you get these principles working and alignment and all the ducks in a row, it's just, you know, it creates momentum. It creates a flywheel effect that's very powerful and hard for a competitor to overcome. The book is called From Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. You know, if we were doing this a number, you know, I, I, you know, a lot of people hold up the, uh, you know, the copy of the book, like here it is. And, like, and like, you've got it, right? You can hold it. Yeah. Uh, this will be flashed on the screen all over, but I'm glad you've got it as well. I got to remember to ask my uh, authors in the future to also hold up the book because I get the digital version. Love the book. Learned a lot. A lot of great stories. Um, and I'm going to I'm going to plagiarize some of those stories and some of the uh, when I when I speak to my clients as well um, about you know, really great examples of customer service. John Picot, thank you very much. I learned so much in this conversation from your book, and I appreciate you coming on and talking. Thank you, Gene. I had fun. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Take care then. We'll be back sometime soon, uh, two weeks, with another episode of Biz Books. Thank you very much for joining us, guys.